Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast today on the pod Budget Battle. We look at the Surrey Police Service's new budget ask, what the city doesn't play ball. Solicitor General Mike Farnworth joins us. Plus, the beginning of the end, the city establishes a group to oversee the end of the park board. How long will it take? Plus, BC homes owned by foreigners are less than half the numbers of homes that BC residents own abroad. We look at the ugly reality of housing nationalism. Plus, the feds finally cap international student numbers. What's it mean for BC? Post-Secondary Education Minister Selena Robinson joins us. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. The Surrey Police Service released its proposed 2024 budget. The key message, there's plenty of money to pay for the ongoing police transition. The SPS is asking for $141 million this year. The agency says that that figure is based on the city's own numbers. Uh, There's some carryover from the last fiscal year as well. There's also underspent money from the Surrey Police Transition Fund and a one-time funding support uh, from the B.C. government. The SPS says Surrey has allocated $214 million for policing in its own 2023 2027 fiscal plan. 83 million is a carryover from 2023. It adds there's 10 million from the police transition fund, 33 million in funding remaining from the provinces. Lots of numbers there, folks, but the key message is there's lots of dollars there for this transition. Uh, now, Mike Sear is a former Abbotsford police chief who serves as an administrator to perform the functions of the Surrey Police Board and help with the police transition. He was at today's press conferences and he was asked uh, in regards to these numbers that he was talking about. What if there is no response from the city? Take a listen. Well, I mean, to this day, we have not heard whether our budget has been accepted yet. I'm I'm hopeful that uh, we can have this budget approved and move forward because any delays delays the transition moving forward. And those delays to the transition can be expensive for the city of Surrey. As I said, having two police agencies running simultaneously and the administrative costs. So uh, uh, I, the city, I have until March 1st to provide any additions or changes to the uh, provisional budget. Uh, the city of Surrey has until May 15th under the Community Charter Act to uh, uh, approve and finalize the budget for all um, areas within the city. So, but I hope that we will hear something sooner so we can move forward. That was Mike Sear. Now, if approved, the SPS says it can have 408 deployable officers ready by the end of uh, 2024 to raise the number to 526 officers uh, by year's end. The city of Surrey has funding in place for a total of 785 officers. Uh, And, of course, as you saw, Mr. Sear says he's hopeful the city will accept the proposed budget. Well, joining me now to talk about this issue uh, is an individual who's been in the middle of it from day one. That's Mike Farnworth, BC's Minister of Public Safety and Solicitor General. Minister, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, lots of numbers being thrown about, uh, but ultimately, uh, Mr. Sear, as the administrator, says the dollars are there, we can move forward. How uh, confident are you that the uh, city of Surrey will cooperate? Well, I think the city of Surrey needs to understand that there is money there for this transition to take place. Uh, budget's been submitted. It's within their own fiscal framework. And it means that there, should, that there should not be a tax increase, that there is no need for a tax increase related to uh, the cost of the transition and policing in the city of Surrey. Um, you know, they've said, oh, that's been their big issue. Uh, and uh, this budget um, clearly makes it, makes it clear that that's not the case, that the transition continue uh, will continue and that it does not uh, have to uh, or will impact the, the citizens of Surrey in terms of a, a tax increase. Now, today, the mayor of Surrey, Brenda Log, put out a press release. I'm just going to quote from it. It says that Mr. Sear stated today that the transition can go forward over the next three years without the Surrey taxpayer being forced to pay more. To suggest such a thing is not only disingenuous, but reveals the continued lack of knowledge and due diligence on the part of the NDP government when it comes to the financial ramifications of this transition to Surrey. It goes on to say the Surrey pro- the province has already estimated the switch to the SPS will cost a minimum of $30 million extra per year. Unless the province plans to fund 100% of all the SPS's extra costs, not just for three years but beyond, any shortfall will fall on the backs of three residents and businesses. Now, I'm going to assume the extra costs may be IT, could be a gun range, uh, could be other uh, uh, other issues that the mayor has brought up in, in, in the past. Uh, the, the money that the province has put in, is that to cover all those costs or is it just for the transition itself? Uh, I'm going to make uh, a, a point clear right now. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put my stock in a professional uh, police officer, uh, police chief, who spent a career in policing and understands budgeting, has put together budgets, 
in terms of the transition, as opposed to, uh, once again, uh, you know, uh, wild statements uh, from the uh, from the uh, from the, the, the city. Uh, there's $150 million put in by the province based on the city's numbers uh, verified by Deloitte. Uh, this budget was put together in the framework of the city's own budget or their own financial plan over the next three years. Um, and the transition is intended to take two and a half years. Uh, that's over five years. That's $150 million, $30 million a year. We said we'd structure it any which way. Uh, had the mayor read the budget, for example, um, she would know that IT is included in the budget that was presented to the city, as, such, as, as well as costs such as ammunition and, and equipment, for example. Uh, so, with the gun range, is there? Sorry, I don't mean to jump in. Is there a gun range that's covered as well, or would that be extra costs? That that whole issue of a gun range, quite frankly, I think is 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 sort of a bit of a distraction. There are plenty of gun ranges in the Lower Mainland, for example. There's the ones that the current that the RCMP currently use, for example, uh, up on Burke Mountain, where a number of police agencies. Um, already, um, you know, uh, are able to use a facility. So to somehow suggest that there has to be a purpose-built, like, this is about a transition, mm-hmm. and that's already underway. And the city needs to understand the transition is not going back. The law of the province of British Columbia is Surrey will be policed by the, the, the Surrey Police Service. We've had a budget prepared by a professional uh, along with advice in terms of that by uh, uh, Jessica McDonald, uh, again, another professional, um, who, and, and, and the, the administrator, a uh, career uh, in, in policing in terms of what's required and done in the context of the city of Surrey's own financial fiscal plan. And so it does not result in a tax increase for the citizens of Surrey. If the mayor, council, are intransigent, still uh, are putting up hurdles before uh, the Surrey Police Service and yourself uh, and, and the provincial government. Uh, what happens next? Well, uh, the uh, the um, uh, the budget can be referred under Section 27 of the Police Act to the uh, Director of Police Services, who can make a binding decision uh, on the budget uh, that the City of Surrey uh, must adopt, and that is the law. And you're willing to, to, to just, you think you have no problem with that, you will justify it, you will argue for it, it and if it needs to happen, it'll happen pretty quick. I, and it's not something that I do. Uh, this is made by the Director of Police Services, who has the statutory authority to do just that. But as the administrator said today, um, they want to, he wants to work with the City of Surrey. If they have some issues, they have some, some, some concerns about, you know, uh, what should be in, there's, there's, there's a whole budget process that has to be done by, um, you know, the, uh, the, the 1st of March. Uh, and then, of course, um, it's required to be uh, approved by uh, May 15th. And that is something that applies to, to all local governments uh, when it comes to their budgets. Minister, my final question to you, this court action uh, that the city has initiated, does that have any impact uh, on timing uh, or your decisions? Absolutely not. Uh, the transition continues, the budgeting process continues, all of that continues uh, regardless of the, of the court action. Minister, as always, thank you for your time. Thanks. But we're going to move from policing to cannabis. Talk about uh, Correct, Mundo. <laughs> a 180-degree turn. Yeah, right. In, in a way, yeah, absolutely. And uh, about sort of another thing that city council is like, what shall we do on the issue of cannabis stores in Surrey? Because Surrey, so cannabis has been recreationally legal to sell and consume in Canada um, for five years as of October 2023. Mm-hmm. However, British Columbia's largest, second largest city rather, has not had a legal cannabis store anywhere. You can find them in North Delta, you can find them in White Rock, but Surrey and Richmond as well, but Surrey uh, absent of legal cannabis stores. And so I was curious, it's a large market, it's, you know, I I was, I, I just assumed that there was cannabis stores in Surrey, but uh, mm-hmm. I saw this news that they're floating a survey for the public to take uh, about potentially opening 12 cannabis stores. And so I spoke with Surrey City Councillor Linda Annis about this, and of course my first question for her was how BC's second biggest city has gone five years without a legal retail cannabis store. Well, the previous council certainly wasn't receptive to having cannabis stores uh, in Surrey. 
the staff now has gone back and is looking at the opportunity to find out uh, whether there's an appetite from the residents. As you know, Surrey and Richmond are the only two cities in the Lower Mainland that don't currently um, uh, offer cannabis for sale at retail. So this this survey that's going out, um, what kinds of things are we asking the public and in what way are we kind of gauging the appetite, I guess? Well, first of all, I have to say that I'm glad that we're reaching out to the residents to get their opinions about this. What they're doing is they're testing out how many stores would be acceptable. The city is recommending that there be approximately 12 stores located in city centres throughout Surrey. Uh, so we're testing to see what the residents feel about that, what the proximity should be to schools and other um, places where children um, go on a daily basis. But I think bottom line, it really comes down to, you know, not whether you support cannabis retail or not. It is a legal substance now and uh, should be treated much, I think, in the same way uh, as uh, uh, wine and beer stores. If the public, if you do this survey, you get the results back, if the public seems to be overwhelmingly, say, enough in favor, what are what are next steps? Well, there will be a report that goes to council. Uh, I believe staff is recommending up to two locations in each one of our city centres. Uh, and then there'll be a process that will go through to, uh, to get um, or companies to step up and, and open stores. I guess timeline-wise, we would still kind of be pretty far out from the reality of legal cannabis stores in Surrey. I don't think it takes too long. There's been much work done. I know that staff has consulted with cannabis retailers uh, to get a sense of, you know, what their interest is in Surrey. And now next step, of course, is to um, to reach out to residents and, and find out if there is indeed an appetite for it. There's been lots of discussion about whether or not uh, cannabis stores should be uh, in city-owned buildings or um, in private, uh, well-trafficked uh, uh, locations. And personally, I don't believe that um, the city of Surrey should be in the cannabis business themselves, um, that this should be outsourced and have people running uh, cannabis operations that know what they're doing. Okay, this was this is what I was seeing some comments about. Yeah, like it's not our job to be landlords to cannabis stores. It's our job to to regulate how the stores can operate. So that was coming from suggestions that these these stores be put in city owned buildings. Correct. And I don't think we would be the only city that I'm aware of that would be doing that. And I, it should be in locations um, in malls or in high traffic areas so that the operators have the best opportunity for success. Uh, putting them in city-owned buildings isn't isn't the solution. I don't think we should be landlords to uh, cannabis stores. We're not landlords to other retailers. So why cannabis? For sure, to to ensure that this you know business opportunity is as fruitful as can be, then for sure, yeah, high traffic, like private retail spaces, seems like the ticket. It seems to be where they're popping up in other um, municipalities. Um, absolutely, Owen. And as I say, we're not looking for a proliferation of stores all throughout Surrey. We're looking at potentially up to 12 locations and treating them much in the same way that, um, you know, adults would go to purchase uh, beer and wine or other liquor products. Um, you know, it's a a legalized substance, as is alcohol, and I think should be treated in a, in a very similar manner. You know, what's interesting is when this was introduced uh, in 2018, I guess, mm -hmm. there was a lot of talk around com communities not being forced to move forward with it, and I got to hand it to the government at the time because I was there as an MLA. It's one of the things we talked about. Um, but the way I looked at it, it's kind of like the American South. You have dry counties. We're going to have towns or cities that are kind of dry if that's what the, the residents or they believe the sentiment of communities. But we're this far into it now. Um, you know, the world hasn't fallen apart. In fact, I think the revenue is a lot lower and less than people, certainly the yes. industry expected. And you've Absolutely. Seen, you've seen that cons consolidation in the industry. Probably need more of it, actually. But for a city the size, size of Surrey, which is over 600,000 people, I think there's none. And, then you're, and even I think the Samyamu First Nation have a dispensary right on their territory in White Rock. So <laughs> surrounded by communities that are like offering this stuff it. up. Yeah. 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 So, so it's, it's driving, you know, kind of business out of Surrey is my feeling about it. And the, you know, why, why not?
Yeah. yeah. Get business insurance. I took the survey. It's pretty cool. It lays out all the regulations that they intend. It has all of the pr- sort of, I guess, provisos of, well, we're not going to put them right beside a school. They have to be 200 meters yeah, away from all of fine. this stuff. And there's not going to be that many of them. And we'll have an intense vetting process for those who, if, if it goes through for those dispensaries that do, um, that, that are allowed to open. So it's, 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 it's baby steps. It's different so if, it's, it's, if it's 12, 12, they were saying? 12, yes. Yeah, so yeah, two per community. So it, it, within Surrey, so that's about one for every 50,000 people roughly. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Good right? math. Yeah, yeah it's right? one per 47,000. So that's... and That's it's not a lot compared to other communities. Yeah, in Vancouver, right? The ratio is one cannabis store for eight, roughly 8,000 people. And in Calgary, <laughs> where I'm from, where it's the wild, wild west, it's yeah. one in 6,000... One cannabis store for 6,000 people right now. Wow. So sat- it's everywhere. It's Albertans, like Starbucks. Wow, good for yeah, them. They Holy went real ca- hard right away. Really hard. I would love to know what other communities in even small town BC yeah. uh, are doing. You were mentioning... What was not You were mentioning a number <laughs> in... Terrace. Yeah. yeah. I have a friend in Terrace and he says his fact that he touts is that uh, Terrace has at least at the time the last time I talked to him more <laughs> cannabis stores than Tim Hortons his priorities yeah, I've been to the, the I think they have two Tim Hortons there so, so they might have three, three cannabis stores yeah, I yeah, think that's minimum, what it yeah, is yeah. too yeah, yeah and Tim Hortons are a big deal in small yeah. town BC <laughs> trust me well that thank you so much it's interesting thank and you. you've gone to the the dispensaries like I don't use yeah. the stuff but like do you find it Better or uh, the, or the same as the traditional way of buying pot from a few Jazz, years ago? I wouldn't ago? know a singular thing about the traditional uh-huh. way of buying pot, but I hear from sources. I used to work in a dispensary as well back in Calgary, yeah. and the sentiment from the clientele was like, oh, well, it's you know drier because it's been on a truck. It has to have uh-huh. been shipped from somewhere who produced it, usually from Ontario or British Columbia. And there was a few places in Calgary that grew it. But uh, yeah, just it caught, there was a higher price point, and then they had an issue with the weight of it always. I mean, is it the traditional stuff? I always feel the CBD, like the oils for people with migraines and stuff like that, gummy bears. That's where the do- true dollars of the growth in the business is going to be. Certainly. Absolutely. Yeah. I like I like talking people up with CBD oil. And they come in, they be like, oh, wow, I slept better at least anecdotally just for me. And I was like, that's great. That's half the battle. There that's you half go. the battle. All right. Thank Thanks, you, Jerry. Jazz. Vancouver is one step closer to losing its elected park board. Uh, today, Mayor Ken Sim uh, revealed members of a newly dedicated working group to guide the process, essentially work towards eliminating the park board. Uh, members of the, uh, this transition team include Catherine Evans, a former Vision Vancouver Park Board Commissioner, Jordan Nidger, uh, a soccer coach and South Asian community leader, Shauna Wilton, who is an interim park board general manager, uh, Jennifer Wood, who is the director of BC Diving, and Gregor Young, an executive director of the Vancouver United Football Club. Now, Mayor Ken Sim spoke at a press conference earlier today, uh, and he talked about how the park board transition group will operate. Take a listen. Now, the park board transition working group will operate within the framework uh, framework of their terms of reference, which has all uh, been handed out to you. And these guidelines will not only steer their efforts, but will also outline the overarching objectives that we aim to achieve. As for the makeup of the working group, each of the following individual holds deep ties to our Vancouver parks and will play a crucial role in ensuring a seamless transition process as we bring park jurisdiction under the oversight of City Council. Now, the mayor also did talk about uh, why he believes a change is needed and why the park board uh, needs to be uh, run under the auspices of City Hall and why that's a priority for him. Take a listen. Now, I do want to be very clear here. This change is bigger than any one person or political party. It's about prioritizing the needs of all Vancouverites and ensuring that our parks and recreation facilities can serve our community to their fullest potential. This change is about managing these spaces more effectively, not compromising them. And I'm personally excited about the next phase and uh, continuing to work with our provincial partners to ensure a brighter future for parks, uh, for Vancouver and our parks. Well, joining me now to talk about today's announcement is Brennan Bastiavansky. He's the Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. Uh, Brennan, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jez. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so tell me your thoughts, first of all, what the mayor had to say there in regards to this transition group. Uh, they're going to guide the city in regards to uh, moving away and eventually uh, uh, eliminating the park board. Your thoughts on that? Well, the, the transition team has no legitimacy to start with. So the, uh, the premier gave really strict instructions, uh, really clear instructions that um, 
that the mayor was meant to put a plan together and get support uh, from the nations and the unions and have a plan with the, about what they're going to do with all the assets. And none of that work's been done. And so it, it was really hilarious that the, uh, the province again indicated that, they're, that they're, they're aware that only a small handful of people in Vancouver want to get rid of the park board and that it's not a priority. So uh, uh, the mayor has not been following instructions uh, from the province. How much of a, a hurdle is the, uh, the consultation and conversation with First Nations communities uh, in regards to the park? I would include the Musqueam and, and Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh, uh, to my understanding. Uh, you know, to, for the dissolution of the park board uh, and the transfer of power, there requires a significant amount of consultation with First Nations people under the, under the terms of uh, UNDRIP. Uh, can this work be done quickly in your mind in a thorough way, or do you think this is sort of this is going to hold the city back? Well, the the disrespectful way that the city has been um, working with the nations, like it, it tells us that he hasn't done his homework. Like uh, the mayor doesn't realize like the uh, the importance of having the nations on side and their, their the level of involvement uh, that they need to have, and. That, and that hasn't happened yet. There was one letter um, uh, from Musqueam put out, uh, but there are two nations that haven't uh, provided that support. In fact, there, I've heard that there is a, a letter in circulation from all three nations that uh, to the province that indicates that they are not supportive. And, and the, uh, the mayor was asked about that today, and he swerved the question. And again, it goes back to this is about Ken, and he's not to be trusted. This is from someone who was inside his team, and so when he says it's not about selling off assets, that's exactly what it is. When he says it's about, uh, you know, it's not about one person, it's about, uh, about Ken wanting to have control. And, and there's, there's no other reason. He, he even, like, we're like, what, month out, uh, six weeks out? He still cannot give any specific examples of, uh, of uh, things that, um, that can't be fixed. He's still campaigning. He's still using the same language he was when he was in the campaign, and he hasn't shifted into the governance part of his job. If uh, Ken Sim had come to you as a potential candidate prior to the last election and said, look, I want you to run, but one of the uh, main policy uh, policies I'm going to push is for the elimination of park board, would you have run for the party? Uh, no, absolutely not. The only reason why I ran was because he had promised me and promised the other commissioners and promised the city, promised the councillors, that we would be given the term, the four years, to be able to work on improving the park board and making it more effective. And uh, and he hasn't given, he hasn't done that. Um, they even used, um, you know, the, the Century Park motion the other day as political theater. I mean, uh, the the independents and the green, they strengthened it to make sure that we could actually put in uh, a destination um, uh, like park or like five destination Century uh, playgrounds. And, uh, and they voted it down because it wasn't their motion. And then, and then when we asked for money from council, uh, the ABC commissioners voted that down. And then they said their behavior was terrible. And they pointed at their own behavior as the reason why the park board's not working. Like, that, that's ridiculous. Um, I know there have been other park board, former park board commissioners that have spoken out from, from a variety of parties on the importance of the park board. Equally, there's people who say, wait a minute here, most municipalities in this country don't have a park board. What's your argument for Vancouver on its own needing a park board when other cities in this region do not? It's all under the responsibility of City Hall. What is wrong with that? Well, you can, I mean, if people want, like, Toronto, like the poor parks that Toronto has, like, that's what happens when you go through City Hall, right? They, they, they would have a Doug Ford-style mayor uh, in Vancouver, um, and, and that's not what people want. People want to Stanley Park protected. They want um, the connected green spaces. They want to be able to talk directly with the elected officials. And the councillors, uh, city councillors across the country and across North America, they have that issue. And Vancouver's, you know, it's not the only one that's elected. Um, uh, there, there, are, there is another example, uh, Minneapolis, but mm-hmm. there's also other ones that have the same model where they do have uh, a separate board, um, and uh, that looks after specifically Parks and Rec, and they're actually following Vancouver's model. So there are there are cities that are adopting 
the differentiation between council and a, and a, a version of park board. The governance that Vancouver had is just ahead of its time. And that's why we have Stanley Park, the Seawall, and, you know, the, the green spaces that everybody knows and loves in Vancouver. But there's also, a, a, one would argue, a deficit in, in community centres, deficit in, in amenities that some of the suburbs have and Vancouver doesn't. And I know maybe it, it, there's a greater demand in Vancouver. I don't know. Um, but in regards to the park board itself, the present park board, is still that the best way to govern when you're always sort of begging bowl in hand going to City Hall uh, and they don't always approve things? Uh, you've got a major amount of infrastructure that needs to be improved. You've got a growing city with more people needing more, more community centres. Do you still think that the park board under its present uh, setup, structural policy-wise, is actually up to the job in dealing with the demands that are presently there, never mind in the future? Oh, you're, but you make a great point. Uh, we, have, we have world-class parks because of the park board. We have crumbling infrastructure because city council has, has underfunded the park and rec system uh, for, for like over a decade. Right. So there is like, so when they talk about crumbling aquatic center, that's looked after by uh, REFM. They talk about the crack at the, um, uh, at the aquatic center. That's REFM, right? So the park board is the one advocating for money. It's the council and mayor that's deciding not to put money into the park and rec system. And, that's what we, that, and that was on show um, earlier this week when we, asked, we went to council, asked mayor, you know, mayor, like ABC, you, you promised to create and fund a destination uh, playground. And when we asked, they, they voted against it. And so if, they, if, you, if the city, like, thinks that someone that doesn't care about holding their, like, upholding their own promises and putting money behind their own promises when they have that ability to, what makes people think that they're going to do it when there's no one advocating for parks? Brendan, as always, thank you for your time. Jez, uh, thanks again. Appreciate it. The number of BC homes owned by people who live outside of Canada is less than half the number of homes that BC residents own abroad. If that surprises you, well, a new UBC study says blame the narrative that uh, has arisen during the housing affordability crisis, which often cites foreign, foreign home ownership as a major contributing factor with little evidence. Joining me now to talk about this new UBC study is Dr. Nathan Louster, Associate Professor at UBC's Department of Sociology. Dr. Louster, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, how did you go about this study? How did it start in regards to just deciding this is something you wanted to, to, to look a little deeper at. Uh, it's a really good question. I mean, effectively, um, Jens and I were both, and that's my co-author, we were both following um, the news stories as they unrolled, especially during the really dramatic run-up in prices um, between 2014 and 2016 around Vancouver. And uh, a lot of the narratives um, especially started, as they started to center on uh, foreign buyers and especially uh, foreign buyers identified as coming from China, um, we started to have some concerns about how this was shaping up, and we wanted to keep track of this, um, push back where we didn't think it was well-supported. Um, and over time, we started to follow the stories, follow where they went as they spread outside of Vancouver to B.C. and to Canada at large um, in terms of these framings that blame foreigners for our housing problems. So, and that's what we wanted to track, and, mm-hmm. and that's what we ultimately tried to track and provide some data about. So the core thesis being here is the number of BC homes owned by foreigners is less than half the number of homes that BC residents own abroad. Uh, and how did you go about it, uh, collecting this data? Sure, for the data for that, um, you know, we combine a variety of sources, but uh, in terms of the ownership of properties in BC by people living abroad. That comes from the uh, Canada Housing Statistics Program. Um, and we also provide some critical looks at that program in terms of its, the quality of its data in the paper. Uh, but we still think that's useful data, and we compare that to data from the, um, basically the survey of uh, financial security in Canada, which has data on Canadian property holdings. Uh, including their ownership of properties abroad. So that's where we get those two data points from. Uh, You've referred to this uh, as reactionary housing nationalism. What do you mean by that? 
Sure. I mean, that process of blaming foreigners for housing problems and valorizing some concept of who's in the nation um, as the people who should have access to housing. And part of the problem arises because that definition of who's foreign uh, and how we define them as foreign is really slippery. Um, and you saw a lot of different conceptualizations of who gets cast as foreign and effectively villainized as foreign as causing housing problems within Canada um, as the narratives unfolded over time. Uh, so in this case, who do you, maybe, I'm not sure if blame is the right, right word, even though I think there was a much-needed conversation around housing, and, it's, and this is a housing conversation that continues to this day. Was it uh, political leaders uh, who were driving this narrative? Was it members of the media in regards to editorials and the conversations in our, in our news organizations? Or is it just a sort of an underlying sentiment the public's had and was looking for a scapegoat, potentially? I mean, or is it a little of all of what I've described? I think that's right. It's a little bit of all that you've described. Um, and I think, you know, our, our goal here wasn't to actually assign blame uh, so much as just to track how this narrative developed. Um, and I do think it's kind of complicated, and we point towards this at the end of the paper uh, with respect to, you know, future work that could be done on some people treating this as a strategic moment that they can insert their dearly held beliefs uh, that we need to be more nationalistic in Canada, uh, whereas other people um, jumping into this conversation because they're genuinely trying to solve a housing problem, and this seems like it might be a solution. Um, and I think that that's a complicated aspect of how this works out, that we're not trying to cast blame on people, just trying to note how this has unfolded and where we think it's potentially going wrong. Uh, I guess one could argue that if, if we are blaming others for our housing challenges, certainly in that period you were mentioning, it could, we easily as Canadians could be blamed for exacerbating local uh, housing challenges in, in warmer climates like Hawaii or um, other parts of the United States or, or many other nations where, we, where Canadians may own property. Absolutely. And, of course, that's part of this uh, a very Canadian a transnational identity of the snowbirds who leave Canada during the cold months for someplace warmer and then come back to Canada during the warmer months. So um, certainly I think that's the case, that uh, if we look at all the wealth that Canada has abroad in terms of properties owned abroad, and if they were, uh, through reaction to Canada's policies, um, uh, penalizing foreigners, if that wealth was actually brought back home uh, to Canada, we could be facing an even bigger sense of, uh, of housing crisis in terms of that wealth being brought to bear upon Canadian markets. Mm-hmm. Now, recently, the provincial government uh, uh, introduced wide-ranging housing reform during the fall legislative session in 2023, which is Push, they're pushing towards more, more density uh, a, a, on a single-family lot. It is, in many ways, uh, uh, probably one of the most transformative pieces of legislation in decades that we have seen in our province. Uh, and one could also argue that, look, it wasn't just a BC issue, that they've had housing challenges in Toronto, they have housing challenges in, in Seattle, Los Angeles, New York, London, Sydney, that perhaps some of the ugliness that we saw at that early stage you described did get us eventually to a better place, which is, in this case, housing legislation. And people may not agree with all of it, but it appears that the municipal, provincial, and federal governments are all trying to move in the right direction, which is actually addressing the issue of a lack of housing, a lack of rental housing, and the broader issue of housing affordability. You know, I think that's absolutely right. Um, And I think there's still a live debate over whether we needed that ugliness to get here. Hmm. Uh, But I do think that that's right, that we've now turned towards what really is driving so much of our housing crisis, which is a real crisis of not having enough housing. We just don't have the supply we need uh, in the places where people want to live. I just had the immigration minister on uh, the other day. In fact, uh, uh, I will have the post-secondary minister of post-secondary education here in British Columbia on the show uh, later today. And uh, it's a similar situation. We were talking about uh, foreigners being blamed for housing. Even today, it's in many cases, one could argue we've moved to still people who are considered foreigners, but international students and their impact on housing, on commuting, on all these issues. So it's, it's not like the issues that you are highlighting here have gone away. They've just sort of moved away from a traditional foreign home buyer to an international student 
who just wants to rent and the fact that they may be exacerbating our housing challenges as well. Yeah, absolutely. And again, like you mentioned, we're also just not, not just seeing this in Canada in terms of this uh, blaming. Uh, they just had a piece in the New York Times about Ireland and riots there that were exacerbated by housing issues and uh, treating foreigners, uh, anybody identified as foreigners, if they're to blame for that. So it's definitely something that we're seeing in a lot of places. Now that the housing crisis, especially post-pandemic, has become pretty acute. Professor Loster, really appreciate your time. Thank you for the conversation. I look forward to chatting with you soon again. Thank you. Thanks so much. Fans uh, appear undeterred when it comes to Vancouver Whitecap tickets. So this season's single game tickets uh, were uh, on sale as of this morning. And, of course, uh, international soccer superstar Lionel Messi uh, will be visiting uh, Vancouver on May 25th. His team, Inter-Miami, will be visiting at that time. He's 36 years old. uh, But the idea of a world-class player like that coming to Vancouver, uh, tickets went on sale, and, boy, they weren't cheap. Uh, Some of the tickets I saw, five or six, I just looked at the website right now, the Ticketmaster site, and I think the cheapest ones I could find, folks, was $199, and that's the upper bowl. So they're opening up the upper bowl, uh, and uh, the seats, essentially the lower bowl, have all gone, and there's a few left in the upper bowl. I'm pretty much close to sold out, not almost there, not completely, but almost there. Uh, to the point uh, this morning, the website crashed when they did open up uh, uh, the sales for those single game tickets. Talk a little bit about the Lionel Messi effect. Is our good friend Rob Faye, a weekend morning host here at CKNW, a longtime sportscaster, and uh, dare I say today, a birthday boy as well. <laughs> so happy <laughs> birthday, Rob. Thank you for taking time out of your your day uh, for us and our, for our listeners as well. Really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. It's a dubious birthday. I turned 50. I'm not really sure what to do just yet. (laughs) 50 years young, my friend. 50 years young. That's what I'm told. That's what I'm told. (laughs) There you go. Well, let's talk a little bit about Lionel Messi. Did you think um, they'd be close to sold out uh, in just one day? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a guy that you could probably put up on the Mount Rushmore of greatest soccer players in the history of the game. And uh, to think that he's coming to Vancouver after we've been able to watch him in the pink and black of Miami for the last year or so, it's a big deal. So uh, you got to remember back in 07 when Beckham first made his appearance in Vancouver, that had 48,000 fans. And boy, did they clam up those tickets quickly then. So I I would be shocked if by tomorrow they didn't announce the sellout or pretty darn close. Uh, what is it about Lionel Messi? I know he's a world-class player, as you say, on the Mount Rushmore of soccer. Uh, but he's also in the tail end of his career. Uh, well, why do you think there's such a pull for people like this? Well, I think it's to say that you saw him. I mean, it's kind of like going to see the Rolling Stones or going to see somebody. I mean, the Rolling Stones are long in the tooth, but I guarantee if they came to Vancouver, they'd sell out as well. And you got to remember, this guy scored more goals than anybody in the history of the game. So to say that you saw him is half of the appeal. I mean, I don't think if it was just Inter-Miami coming without him that there would be tickets, uh, you know, that go in as quickly as they are. But to say you simply saw the greatest player in the history of the game or arguably one of the greatest um, is definitely worth the cost of admission. The talk has always been, well, he only plays on grass. He's not going to waste his time playing on turf. Were you a bit surprised they're going to go ahead with that? Yeah, you know, that's interesting because David Beckham, that was uh, Beckham Gate back in 2011 when uh, he got a, a yellow card the game before and then, of course, didn't make it to Vancouver for the turf game. Um, but you you look at Messi at this stage of his career, I think he's aware of the schedule and the wear and tear. I'd say kind of like Beckham back when he committed to 45 minutes and then anything above that is uh, gravy, as they say. I think if you get 35 to 40 minutes out of Messi, nobody will be uh, feeling like they got shortchanged. Hmm. Um- I recall in December, uh, there was a, one of those yearly lists Google puts out in regards to the top 10 searches in British Columbia. And I believe the number one um, uh, subject was uh, women's soccer around the controversy and all that type of thing. But the number yeah. 10 most Googled story of the year was Lionel Messi, even here in British Columbia. And I, <laughs> I guess that must have been just the announcement that he was joining or coming on board at Inter-Miami. Well, if you think of what he's done since he's come to MLS, for those who aren't soccer fans, he basically came over just shy of two years ago and then immediately led them to a championship. So there was a lot of reason to talk about Messi more than just the fact he was coming to Vancouver. But you think of him a little long in the tooth, maybe by European standards, still lots of gas left in the tank when it comes to the MLS game, which is whether they want you to say it or not, a cut below what you see overseas. I think for me, 
if he gets through this season and Vancouver gets a chance to see him, he probably packs it up after this or at least, you know, begins to phase himself out of the game. But this is a great thing for Vancouver uh, on the heels of getting rent. Well, on the heels of everything with saw with Christine Sinclair ahead of the World Cup and ahead of everything. I think this sparks football fans across the city and dare I say across the country. Well, you know, you've been covering sports for a very long time in this city and, and there have been different eras. You think of Bobby Leonard Doozy. Uh, you think of the 86ers, Whitecaps, all of that. It's, they're different phases and, and different uh, types of growth. Where does soccer and and where do the Whitecaps sort of fit in today? What's how, how do you view the sport here in Vancouver and in British Columbia? Well, I think outside of maybe Leonard Doozy's championship year, uh, the heyday, if you will, for soccer in this city, this is the best that it's ever been. I think what MLS did to get over the hump and truly become one of the big sports in North America, that wasn't an easy old boys group, group to get into. So the fact that MLS has got legitimate credibility uh, around the world at this point bodes well for soccer in Vancouver. I'd sure love to see this team get into the playoffs and get a run. I think this fan base that is so good is just absolutely starved. I wish the white caps weren't as cheap as they were, but uh, I think this is an opportunity for everybody to go out on May the 25th, see a world-class player and get excited about what the next couple of years have for soccer fans in this city, which includes the world cup, which nobody's talking about. And I think next week we get a sense of the amount of games we'll have here. Some have even talked about what teams, but I think that's a bit early. We won't know what teams there are, but I think we're going to get, get a sense of how many specific games we're going to get. It's supposed to be five or six, but we're supposed to know next week. Uh, you know what? I'll say this, you know, outside of it obviously being one of the big draws, you know, like an Italy or a France or dare I say a USA, I think any country coming to Vancouver is going to spark a sellout crowd. I mean, this is the World Cup. So mm-hmm. Messi, obviously one of the greatest to ever play as an individual, but it should, if anything, start the wick of the stick of dynamite. Um, to what we hope is a big couple of years for the growth of the game in Vancouver and across the province. Yeah, and the other thing, what I find interesting is is how they're planning to bring in natural grass for those games too, for those five or six games. And we were talking about turf now, but for the World Cup, uh, they have to have, use natural grass. So uh, it's going to be very interesting technically how they do it. And, and, and uh, maybe the, over the long term, we can actually keep the natural turf. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Well, it would be great. And I'll tell you this. You know, the one thing you get to remember is BC Place only technically has a handful of sporting events over the course of the year. They use that venue for countless conventions and all different kinds of things, right? The monster trucks. So turf over the long haul, I'm not sure if it's feasible as far as natural grass goes. But if I'm in Toronto right now and I'm a Blue Jays fan, I am watching how Vancouver does with BC Place and natural grass because they've been crying for it back uh, east for a long time. So if we could pull it off and hopefully it doesn't break the bank, I think there's a lot of other people looking in to see how we handle that transition over 18 months. I still remember my early days as a reporter when uh, the Whitecaps uh, were proposing a soccer uh, arena. Uh, I think it was at Crab Park, right around where the Helijet is. Mm -hmm. And it was supposed to be paid by private dollars, open air. I think it was 30,000 seats, something like that. And the city, and then, wait for it, the park board <laughs> were too happy about it. <laughs> and only this city will say no to private dollars saying, we'll build a stadium, just give us the space here. We're willing to put all the dollars in. And we're just hum and haw and hum and haw. Wouldn't that be great if we had uh, an open air, 30,000 seat stadium that the Lions could be playing at, uh, Whitecaps could be playing at. Not that there's anything wrong with BC Place. We put lots of money into it, but just we're, we seem to be missing that sort of 30,000 seat stadium open air, uh, which would be so amazing and much more intimate as well. Jazz, you're throwing me softballs. I love this topic because the reality is, is I remember that as well, but the Whitecaps kicked down City Hall's doors. They went in all rough shot and everybody was <laughs> yeah. like, whoa, take it easy. I think, and I say this till the day that I die, if they'd have gone in with Jake Kerr and Jeff Mooney of the Canadians, who have great relationships with the park board and the city of Vancouver, I guarantee a multi-purpose stadium would have been able to get pushed through. And it would have been soccer. It would have been baseball, much to the dismay of people that love the Nat. But I think it would have been a great, beautiful location for a whole bunch of different sports down there. And they didn't do it because they didn't know how to kiss them on a first date. And that was the reason (laughs) they get that deal done. I swear Uh to you, Jazz, that's why. They went in there like a bull in a china shop they'd have gone in there with some grace they'd have probably got it done you know that's half a life right it's all about tone and and yeah, uh, and and it? just slow and, and the way you say things that's absolutely true well my yeah. friend thank you so much for your time and once again happy birthday to you thank you fella we'll do it again 
We've all passed ridiculous license plates, uh, sometimes on road trips. Those are ones that uh, have been approved, but there actually is an approval process, uh, and that has to go through ICBC. We're joined now by show contributor Jerry Mayer Judson. And uh, so to my understanding, uh, ICBC released a list of rejected vanity places here. Correct. There was 14 blessed pages of them on uh, on this, on this uh, document that they made public, and I love it so much. I love this time of year. Um, I think it's something like 27% of vanity plate applications get rejected. So I was curious, right, as we all were, about sort of what makes a license plate inappropriate or what makes one rejected. So I did talk to Greg Harper. He is a media relations advisor at ICBC. And I asked him about this. I was like, Greg, like what would make a license inappropriate? There's a number of reasons the slogan may be rejected. If the slogan is deemed to be discriminatory in in any way, if it's sexually suggestive, if it's abusive, obscene, or derogatory uh, in any language, if this slogan promotes risky driving behavior, if it's alcohol or drug-related, if it's promoting violence, criminal activity, or or bullying, it would be rejected. If it's intellectual property, for example, if you requested Toyota uh, to be your personalized license plate, that would be rejected. That was actually one of the rejected uh, plates from 2023. And if the slogan is promoting uh, religion, politics, referencing public figures, dignitaries, and law enforcement, it will be rejected as well. So those are some of the reasons. Some of them seem intuitive, like obviously don't be discriminatory or hateful or anything, but uh, you can't be cheeky with making like fast jokes or like the like my favorite one was like oh my god move that was that was i think my fave do you have a like did, did any come through that 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 are your personal favorites for plates that are rejected where you're like not nah, good try but no the one you pointed out it was one of my favorites as far as you know being cheeky um i think why so slow is is, is a good one as well <laughs> the letter y s o space s L-O, you know, clever, being a bit cheeky, a bit aggressive, and that's obviously promoting risky driving behaviors. What an interesting time of year at ICBC, hey? (laughs) It certainly is. And, you know, personalized plates, they can definitely be a creative and fun way to express yourself. Uh, I recommend if you're really serious about it, just to go on our website, you can. there's a vehicles and registration tab, and under there we have personalized plates. And you could take a look at that. It has all the the criteria and guidelines you need to follow. We have a link to the application form. And I recommend if, if you're really serious and you want to apply, you can choose up to five slogans. And that gives you a greater chance, of course, if, if your top preference isn't uh, approved. Maybe the next one will be. It just gives you a greater chance of, of knowing you're going to get a, a slogan approved. I feel like I want to apply now, man. <laughs> I'm already coming <laughs> up. I'm like, oh, what if? What if? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's something to think about, Jerry, for sure. <laughs> there you go. So uh, mm-hmm. of the rejected ones, you have, you have the list, right? I do. I have the list. I only have, I don't have all 14 pages in front no. of me, but I picked and chose some faves. Um, also, I looked and if I do want to get my custom license plate, I checked like all iterations of G money are off the table. Gee. They aren't, they have been rejected. I also have, uh, if you wanted a custom license plate, you'd have to get creative because, uh, Joe hall, all of them are taken. Oh. Joe hall one, Joe sure. hall two, Joe hall three gone. You can maybe have Joe hall seven, but that might be easily confused with Joe hall one. Oh, wow. Unfortunately. Um, so some of my faves um, that were rejected on the basis of being inappropriate. Uh, my favorite one was turd. Just oh. T-U-R-D. Someone tried to get turd. <laughs> um, and then there was one. There were some that, on the basis of dry, of risky driving behavior. So there was D-N-T space H-I-T. Don't hit. Don't hit. Um, okay. O-M-G. M-O-V. Oh, my God. Yeah. Move. Okay. And uh, pin it. Oh. <laughs> I love pin it. And then for miscellaneous reasons, it could be that the application process was terminated. It could be that the payment didn't go through. It could be that there was a duplicate. This is the broadest uh, okay. uh, re- grounds for rejection. But in there, they had dirt bag, D-R-T-B-A-G. <laughs> they had hot dog, which okay. I'm sad. I don't know why. why would, what's wrong with that? I have no idea. And then uh, th- this is a clever one if you're into Star Trek, uh, Engage. Really? It been, but there, but maybe someone's already driving around with it. I don't know. Maybe this is a G money situation. And then a cute one is Van Go V A N space G O. Oh, okay. That would be cute to that put on your good. van. 
Um, would you, would you ever get a custom license plate, Jazz? Um, I don't think so. I, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't even know what I would use actually. Although, can't although, use Joe Hall. No, I, I, I can't guess Joe they're all Hall. Taken. No, I know that sometimes if you go into Surrey, I find you'll have uh, those of South Asian heritage will actually have their villages. Oh, cool! Uh, on, the, on the on the license plate, only in Surrey would they do Very they see neat. A lot of that. But I'm, 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 I have just logged on to a website. Uh, our intern Jake uh, put me on to, and America oh, yes. is America, and it's great. And there's a there's one guy here. He's driving mm-hmm. a white Ford Bronco, and his <laughs> and his vanity plate says "Not OJ." <laughs> I mean, how did that get approved? Right? Here's a, here's another one. This person driving a BMW Power Bottom. Uh, <laughs> How did that get that? That wouldn't fly at ICBC. There's you just can't. no way. You could not. Oh, here's another one. It's a Toyota Rav Four. Looks like it's LA. It says dump them. Just dump them. Just dump them. That's getting, so good. That's my license plate. Here's your, you're getting relationship <laughs> advice on a lot. Dump them on the road. It's amazing. There you go. Jerry, thank you. Thank you. That's our show contributor, Jerry Mayor Judson. Council of Ontario University says the newly announced cap on international student admission is unfairly punishing responsible institutions alongside bad actors in the post-secondary sector. Ontario Colleges, which represents the province's 24 publicly funded colleges, accused the federal government of failing to consult with educational institutions on the recently implemented changes, which they called rushed and damaging. Now, last week, Canada's Immigration Minister Mark Miller announced a two-year cap on the number of new student visas issued uh, in the country for undergraduate and college students. New visas will be capped at 364,000, a 35% decrease from the nearly 560,000 issued in 2023. Immigration Minister Mark Miller was on the show a couple of days ago. We spent a lot of time uh, talking about uh, the the increase in international students happening under uh, the federal Liberal Watch, but also talked about the longer-term uh, challenges in this country where so many of our educational institutions in post-secondary rely on international students to, to uh, pay for uh, the broader system. Here's Mark Miller uh, talking about how some provinces will need to make cuts when it comes to international students. And in the spirit of fairness, spread it around the provinces uh, by, by population. There are some provinces where, this, uh, where there are more students than there are in others. And we didn't feel it was fair uh, to, to penalize other provinces for uh, this, this, this national cap. So some provinces at the end of the day will have to do more reductions like in, in British Columbia and Ontario than others. Uh, for example, in Alberta, Saskatchewan or, or Quebec for that matter. Um, but it's only in, in that spirit of fairness. That was Immigration Minister Mark Miller from a couple of days ago. Joining me now to talk about the issue and the impact on British Columbia is Selena Robinson. She's BC's Minister of Post-Secondary Education and Future Skills. Minister, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jess. Uh, what impact will these cuts in your mind have on British Columbia's uh, public and private education system? Well, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that um, it's only since um, po- sort of post-COVID that we've seen an incredible spike in the number of, of international students. Uh, prior to COVID, it was sort of a steady climb, uh, but it was um, a, a more moderate climb. Uh, we, we, we watched um, international students drop off um, during COVID, and then the, the, the peak um, that we're seeing now is only in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, the federal government um, has sort of just kept uh, kept it open, as we should say. Um, and so they're recognizing, too, that there's, there's too many. Um, it, it's been a challenge, um, to say the least. In our, um, we have about, in British Columbia, we have about 175, 176,000 um, international students in the post-secondary system. Um, more, about 55% of those um, are in the private post-secondary uh, system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, um, that's where we're seeing the, you know, more than, certainly more than half of our international students. Um, and they, they provide a range of programs. Some of them uh, offer degrees. Most of them offer diplomas or certificates. Um, or other kinds of programs that, um, you know, aren't regulated in the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, we don't know exactly what our number is going to be. I haven't yet um, heard from Minister Miller, but I've been in conversation with him several times over the last number of months as we were hearing stories of some egregious operators who um, would um, invite students to come and learn at their institutions but weren't either delivering um, education, weren't delivering quality, were making promises that weren't being kept. And so we were already looking at 
uh, what tools we had at our provincial disposal um, to make sure that students were getting uh, quality and that they weren't being taken advantage of. And so um, I'll have more to say next week because our package of of tools that we're going to be using and bringing forward mm-hmm. um, is not quite not quite ready, but I'll I'll be able to um, to share more specifics on what that package looks like to address some of the quality challenges that we've seen in our system. And I hope that with um, ongoing conversations with Minister Miller um, in the in the near future, we'll we'll find out uh, what um, our number is here for British Columbia for international students. Now, the minister and and I look forward to that. The minister has of course referred to um, you know these schools that have essentially been offering diplomas which he described as an equivalent of puppy mills or diploma mm-hmm. mills um, is this more on the private side or do you think our public institutions have become too reliant on international students to fund the system overall what I mean by that is Thompson River University said they're not sure what type of impact yet this cap will have but you know even now this semester they have 4,500 students which was reported international students on campus for the winter 2024 semester that's nearly half the on-campus student population um, you know, I'm not sure our post-secondary institutions or public institutions were built to have half the student body as international students. Is, is it fair to say that 20, 30 years, this has been a while, I mean, this is not just happening under the NDP, it was under BC Liberals before that, and now would even go back to the 90s. The system has become so reliant on international students to pay for the broader system that we need to have a fundamental rethink of what education is and public education is in this province? So I think public education, uh, I think it is different, Jazz. I actually do think it is very, very different. Hmm. So in our public education system, uh, the province has way more, I'll say, influence on the quality um, and making sure that we have people skilled uh, for the future. And remember, we're going to have a million job openings in the next uh, decade. And um, if we get our immigration right, we will have enough people to do those jobs. Um, but, But if we don't have immigration... We will not have enough people in British Columbia to fill the jobs that we need. So we're talking early childhood educators. We're talking construction workers. We're talking nurses. We don't have enough people if we don't have immigration. Now, international students, making sure that they have the skills to fill those vacancies is absolutely critical. And I know that our public institutions are very well poised to help us deliver that. I think that's really critical. And I I don't disagree with that, but, you know, we have, I think, over 900,000 plus international students, I think, last year that have come. In many cases, not always, many cases, though, they get into these private schools, not the public institution, the private ones. The education is subpar, which you've talked about. But they're not even showing up to classes in some cases. It really is. It's a way to get into Canada. And then you're working in the construction sector, the retail sector, the fast food sector, whatever it may be. It's a way to get around the, the other uh, our, our traditional immigration system we're Absolutely. not we, we sort of in these people turn into indentured folks where they're working low-wage jobs they've been taken advantage of uh, so Completely. so are you comfortable with shutting down some of these private colleges because ultimately it, there's some bad faith players there and this has been going on for a long time I are agree. you comfortable are you comfortable with shutting yeah. down these private schools for sure. Well, those private schools, they have to um, up their game. So I believe in giving people an opportunity to demonstrate their value. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we need to, we need, they need to be accountable. They need to be transparent. They need to deliver a, you know, a certain standard. We have all heard those stories. When I became the minister a year ago, I was hearing these stories and doing some investigation, talking, getting the data, talking to people. I, I brought it to, um, to the premier saying, I am really concerned. This is not okay. And so we started working like seven, eight months ago on putting together a package to, to address the system and making sure that the students are being treated fairly um, and that they are getting um, the quality education that they deserve, that they're paying for. Mm-hmm. They're paying for it. Um, and that hasn't always been the case. So I am fully prepared to take action, and you'll, you'll see the details of that next, next week, but taking action to address those folks who are not uh, meeting standards. And so uh, we're, we're bringing in and using the tools that we have as a province. Now, the federal government, they've just been handing out these visas like there's no tomorrow. They haven't been paying attention. Um, and so I think it's dawned on them what's happened. And I will say um, Ontario, from, my, from what I've seen, is really in a different kind of pickle uh, because of the nature of how they operate their public system. Um, we don't have that kind of problem here. We have um, way more controls. We have a, a better funded public system. And I wanted to just speak for a second, if I can, Jazz, just the value that international students bring to, 
to our um, in, into our post secondary system because a we we need we need people um, we need people and and we also know that it is really good um, for global relations when people here are domestic students have good interactions with people from around the world. There's 150 different um, countries um, that, that have, we have people from 150 different countries who are international students here in British Columbia. And that's good for global relationships. It's good for business relationships. It's good for opportunity. Um, and it, it, it gets away from, you know, xenophobia. I think this is really good. We live in a global world. Um, and so it, it, there's a real value added, but we have to make sure they're supported. We have to make sure that it's a quality product. And we have to make sure at the end of the day that it's a fair system. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And and, and I think minority communities especially have has, have been nearing the coal mine on this issue that there has been abuse and continues to be abuse. And, and I hope we are able to crack down on it because they, it's not right for these students. They are taken advantages of by these private schools. And ultimately, and you don't want to cheapen the quality or cheapen certainly people's perceptions of a Canadian education, that's right. for sure. Exactly. I, I look forward uh, to the announcement next week. Look forward to having you on the show so we can talk a little bit more in a fulsome way in regards to what BC will be doing to address this issue. Thank you so much for your time today, Minister. Good to hear from you. Nice to hear your voice, Jess. Take good care. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.